And as you've been with us since the beginning of the year, we've been looking at a uh, portion of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, in a series we've called The Spirit of the Church. Once again, uh, rediscovering for ourselves the principles in which this church was founded on 20 years ago, and bringing those principles back to our attention uh, because we believe that those principles are the mission in which Christ has purposely raised our church to fulfill. We are looking at Acts chapter 2 at a high level. We are applying it at a high level and uh, allowing just some of the basic principles to be uh, taken into consideration as our mission guideline for our church. And as we realize, number one and first and foremost in Acts chapter 2, we needed to be a Spirit-led church. The Spirit must lead the church. We didn't believe that there was any other way a healthy church could operate apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Then we looked at the early church and how quickly they were thrust into the center of their current culture. And we believe that we had to be a church that engaged the culture, that we didn't uh, retreat from opportunities, but we looked forward to opportunities in engaging the culture for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in so doing, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are learning now from Peter's evangelistic sermon how to share our faith in Christ based on some principles that he laid out for us in his first evangelistic sermon. And the first thing we discovered is giving context by creating the big picture. Second, then we moved into there's uh, no other name, having to get to the point of who Jesus Christ actually is. And this morning, we are going to be traveling into the last portion of this evangelistic sermon, and that is, uh, there is only one name that is above every name that is in heaven. And as I was looking at verse 33, which we'll begin with this morning, my intention initially was to run the table and finish out this sermon of Peter's this morning. But the Lord impressed upon my heart that we really needed to take a moment to consider what transpired there in verse 33, that Peter makes such a point to mention. Truly, it is the climax of everything that he has said up until this moment. And I believe that as a Christian today, we need to be reminded of this today more than ever the fact that our Savior is a living Savior, He is a living God, and He is actively involved in His church and in the life of His people. And we discover in verse 33 that after the death of Jesus Christ, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in chapter 1 of Acts, as we watch Jesus ascend into heaven, the question then we are to ask is, what is he doing now? What is he up to now? He's ascended back into heaven. The disciples watched him go up in the manner in which he did, promised by the angels who were there at the moment that he would return in the same fashion. But what does that mean for you and I? What does it mean that Jesus ascended in the manner in which he did? Now please realize that In many of the creeds of Christianity, the ascension of Jesus Christ is mentioned as a bullet point of importance. 
The ascension and all things being brought underneath His feet. Meaning that He reigns in authority from that exalted position. But what does the ascension of Jesus Christ mean for me and you today as believers in Jesus Christ? This is key crucial that we know this. When we look for in just a moment at some of the other epistles written, we're going to find that the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ was a key component of everything the apostles wrote after the ascension of Jesus Christ. They looked at the ascension with great significance. They looked at the exaltation of Christ with great significance. And it's that significance that I want to rediscover for our church today, that we serve a living God that is actively at work in His church and in the lives of each and every one of us who follow Him. He is not dead I believe that we have been conditioned to look at Jesus as merely an ornament hanging on the cross of the necklace or the charm or the picture depicted and carried by an individual. But the cross is empty. Do we remember that? The cross has crumbled. The cross has uh, rotted away. The cross is gone. It's done with. It's over. And now we serve a living God who is active in the church and the life of each and every one of His followers. And so we're going to explore this morning, verse 33. As I'm going to take this moment this morning to look at verse 33 with you, as Peter then climaxes at this point of his sermon, being therefore exalted, he is speaking of Jesus, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In verse 33, we are going to understand by the time we leave together what it means for Christ to be exalted and what it means for him to be sitting at the right hand of God. And I can't believe that if we truly understand this together as a fellowship, as a congregation, it's not going to radically impact and change our lives. I don't see how it can't if we truly understand this reality. To truly understand the reality of the exaltation and the authority of Christ at the right hand of God the Father. Let us begin our journey by looking at some of the passages of the New Testament that bring this doctrinal um, understanding to our attention and rejoice within it. Let us start in Philippians 2, 9-11. through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted Him, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's a great place for all of us to say, Amen. Do we truly understand what Paul is saying here? That he has been highly exalted by the Father. That there is no other name under heaven. For his name has been exalted amongst every name that ever existed. 
So that at this name, every knee should bow, every tongue confess on the earth, under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. This was a radical position of power, a point of power and strength for the early church. That Christ was alive and is alive today. If we operate from the position that Christ is dead, we're going to be dead. We need to operate from the position that Christ is alive and He is active and He is working today as He did 2,000 years ago. And therefore, when we read these words, as we just read, if you turn back with me to the book of Acts, as Peter then introduces this for the first time, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourself are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When we say that God exalted Christ, what we are saying is that God the Father gave him such a high status in heaven, a status of equality. As he sat Christ at the right hand of himself, which we'll look at more in just a minute, this position of exaltation was the highest honor that God the Father could place and bestow upon the Son, Jesus Christ. As one wrote, he said, the meaning of the exaltation of Christ. By the exaltation of Christ, we refer to the Father giving the risen and ascended Son the place of honor and power at at His own right hand. This truth is taught in many places throughout the New Testament, and it was a motive of power and strength for the new church. In fact, when the Hebrew writer was writing of this, He praised God and showed that Jesus Christ was greater than any angel, any prophet, and any high priest that that came before him. As we come to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly at the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all at a time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This was the praise of the writer of Hebrews concerning Christ. Greater than any angel, greater than any prophet, greater than any human high priest is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Sitting at the right hand of God meant a place of authority. It it meant a place of prominence. It meant a place of uh, honor and respect. In fact, if you remember correctly, as the disciples were following Jesus here on this earth, the disciples were arguing amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest in heaven. And a couple of the disciples pulled out their most lethal weapon to try to uh, uh, guarantee their placement at the right hand of Jesus Christ. They sent their mom to him. 
And mom, on behalf of her children, asked Jesus that when you ascend to your throne, will it be possible that my sons will sit on your right hand and on your left? So what does it mean to sit at the right hand of God? Number one, it says from the text that we just read, it means that the work is done, the sacrifice is satisfied, Jesus Christ has paid it all through His death and through the Father's acceptance and the resurrection, and therefore we know that the work is done. Secondly, we know that the sacrifice has completely been satisfied. There's no other sacrifice needed or required for us to enter into the presence of God other than that which Christ has done on our behalf that now has been justified by Him sitting at the right hand of the Father. And thirdly, He is now positioned to return at any moment. And in His return, His enemies will be put at His footstool, meaning He'll have final authority over all rebellion against God at His return. Again, this caused great power and great confidence, I should say, in the hearts and the minds of the early church that Jesus not only died and resurrected, but ascended into heaven to show and demonstrate he was never going to die again, and he is now at the right hand of the Father. And how did they know that? When Stephen was being crucified, uh, Stephen was being stoned, excuse me, and he was the first martyr of the Christian church, it says that when he was about to die, Jesus stood in heaven, prepared to receive him, exalted as no other has been ever exalted. Concerning the coronation of Christ, I love what one wrote. He said, The truth of Christ's coronation, the truth of His exaltation at the Father's right hand means that He is the fountain of blessing for His children. Because He is there, because He is exalted, because He is at the Father's right hand, the Father has said, You are honored. You are praised. You are glorified. I give you everything I have and we go into His presence to receive it. That's what the exalted Christ means. From the very beginning of the Old Testament, Moses waited for this opportunity of the strength of the right hand of the Lord to deliver the people from their enemies. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. As the psalmist David wrote in Psalm 98, 1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. And in Christ, the early church saw that that power, that authority, that deliverance was through the person of Christ who sat at the right hand of God the Father. And from that point on, the disciples had a confidence. They had a courage like never before. It allowed them to stand up against the assault of great persecution, physical and intellectual persecution. It allowed them to weather the storms of life knowing that their Savior was on the right hand of God the Father interceding on their behalf. As Peter said in Acts 5.31, God exalted him at his right hand and, and as a leader and a Savior to give repentance to Israel and for the forgiveness of sins. He later then wrote in his first epistle, 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And if you will turn in your Bibles with me, please turn to Romans chapter 8. This is a chapter of Scripture that so many believers cling to, but understand that as Paul is writing, he is writing from the position of confidence and courage, knowing that Christ has been exalted. Look with me in verse 34. Please take a moment to read the whole thing in its entirety when you can, but look with me at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written? For your sake we are being killed all day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But look at the confidence, look at the courage, and the theological understanding of his exaltation. No, he says in verse 37, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any, uh, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because He is at the right hand of the Father, exalted in authority forever. Paul went on to praise him in the same manner in Ephesians chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me. In Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, we read this again. For this reason, verse 15 of Ephesians 1, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus And your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you all, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in all the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Please notice and see, if you will, the great, incredible confidence, courage that the early church, the disciples had, the apostles had, 
knowing that their Savior has been exalted and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And I ask you this morning, should we not walk in that same confidence and courage today, knowing that that truth is still a reality before us? As Paul went on in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, he said, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things that are above, not on things which are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. And we can only say that because of who He is and because the Father has exalted Him after His ascension and placed Him at the right hand of the Father. This is so important for us as believers to understand. I don't believe we will operate in the power that we are made to operate if we don't embrace this truth, this reality that we have a living Christ. His ascension once again demonstrating that he will never die again. That's what he's saying. That's what he's demonstrating. I found seven realities of Christ's effect at the right hand of God. What do I mean by that? I mean this. This is what Jesus is doing today. He's not just sitting up there resting. He is working on your behalf as a follower of Jesus Christ and on behalf of his church. He is actively involved in what is happening. And you and I need to know and to understand what he is doing on our behalf to truly allow us to appreciate all that he has given us in and of himself. As Paul said so quaintly, he said, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places through Christ Jesus. What are those blessings? Well, as we look what Christ is doing on our behalf, let us begin. And the very first one is that he is now our high priest. He is interceding on our behalf between God the Father and creation. The mediator that has been given to us. The high priest in the Old Testament had two responsibilities. Number one, to go before God the Father on behalf of the people of Israel. And number two, to go before the people of Israel on God the Father's behalf. That has all been demonstrated in and through the person of Jesus Christ, our ultimate high priest. As the Hebrew writer wrote, he says, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, but the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Seeing that we have a high priest that has passed through and into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. Knowing that Jesus Christ is not representing us here in a man, a human temple made by hands, but in the heavenly places on our behalf, He now mediates for us. John wrote it this way when he said, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the entire world. What does that mean for you and I? This advocacy. As a Jewish person, the image of the high priest would have been all too familiar and common for them. But John describes it as an advocate to those Gentile believers that may not fully understand and appreciate the function and the role of the high priest. So as an advocate, what is Jesus doing on our behalf? Let us understand that Satan himself was cast out of heaven due to the fact that he had rebelled against God. He had, he had raised himself up against God, wanting to be worshipped as God. And because of pride, he was cast down. He fell before the Lord and uh, due to sin with no hope of uh, redemption possible for the devil. You and I were created perfect in Adam. When Adam and Eve fell, from then on, sin entered into every human life that ever existed. And in the same way that Satan rebelled, we rebelled against God the Father. And as Satan has no place, no privilege in heaven, though he often enters heaven, and he has been discarded due to the fact of his sin and rebellion... The question then remains, who are we then to enter into the presence of God in our fallen state? We cannot do that. And so it appears that Satan accuses us. As John wrote here in his book, when we sin, but if anyone does sin, He says, I should say, he wrote these things so we wouldn't sin, but if anyone does sin, then we have an advocate with the Father. And many scholars see it as this, that we as individuals who are in Christ sin and stand before God the Father, we are accused by Satan as being a fallen creature and therefore have no right before God the Father whatsoever. And if it would remain in that light, that would be absolutely true. But being in Christ... When we are accused by Satan of sinning and we our sin there is then before us, our advocate steps in between us and the Father. And he says to the Father, they are one of mine. I am pleading on their behalf. An advocate in the time of, that of John's writing could also settle the debt that the guilty person was accountable to repay. Jesus says, I have paid their debt, Father. I have sacrificed myself for them. They are in me. And as Satan accuses us in the manner in which he does to try to separate us and rip us apart from our fellowship with God, Christ interacts on our behalf. He mediates on our behalf. He's an advocate on our behalf. He's a high priest on our behalf. And he says, Father, they are mine. Look at them through me. And the Father's gavel comes down and says, innocent of all charges. That's what Christ is doing for us on our behalf. This is why we can say that our sins have forgiven past, 
present, and future. Because our advocate in heaven is still advocating on our behalf continuously. That's the first reality. Our high priest, our advocate before the Father on our behalf. Number two, because of the exaltation of Christ, we are assured access to God. Remember that the high priest in the Old Testament could only go into the Holy of Holies one time a year to perform certain ministerial acts before the Father. And if he was found unclean, God would strike him dead. So he needed to go through all of these ritualistic uh, um, and ceremonial cleansings before going into the Holy of Holies before God. And as a result, if it was done perfectly, he would survive. If it wasn't done perfectly, he would die. They tied a rope to his legs, his leg, I should say. And if they heard the bells that were uh, sewn into the bottom hem of his robe stop shaking, they would pull on the rope to see if there was any Uh, tension, and if not, they would pull the body out from the Holy of Holies with that rope. Through Christ, we are guaranteed access to God the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's what he is saying. And when we go through Christ and enter into the throne room of God, let us therefore come boldly into his throne room of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, knowing that there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the person of Christ Jesus. His exaltation and sitting at the right hand of God allows him to be that mediator for us that no one in this world can occupy and mediate for us on our behalf. So let's just get that through our head. No one in this world can do it. Other than Christ himself. Number two. Number three, we know that Jesus Christ, now exalted at the right hand of God, is now the head of the church. And all things have been put underneath his feet, meaning he has authority over all things. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, the word in Colossians 1.18 is used only of Christ, that he may have preeminence. That he may have preeminence. That there is nothing above him. He has all authority, all rule, perfect in his position forever. Being the head of the church, it is he who we are accountable to. Being the head of the church, it is his mission that we are meant to fulfill and to accomplish here on this earth. What he began at Pentecost 2,000 years ago, he is continuing to this day through the hands and the legs and the mouth of the individuals that are in and are part of his church. And this is what we've forgotten. We have made Christianity all about us and how it may settle our felt needs and how it may fill in the blanks of our life to allow us to enjoy this life in a more happy, content condition. But everybody that I read about in the Bible calls themselves first and foremost a doulos of Christ, a slave of Christ. 
They give me the impression that they've given up their right and authority to their own life to follow the person of Jesus Christ. That not their will be done any longer, but His will be done in and through them. I believe that's a much more accurate picture of Christianity than what we see demonstrated today. And I will go one step further. In the last 15, 20 years, we have had more series done from pulpits in America on marriage, on parenting, on happiness, on joy. And yet we are still some of the most miserable Christians that ever existed. Marriages are falling apart left and right. Men don't know how to treat their wives even in a Christian marriage any longer in so many cases. Wives, they don't know how to respond to their husbands. Our children, today we're more concerned about being their friend than being their parent. Let's be honest. And so the church's decision was, well, let's have another conference on marriage. Let's have another conference on parenting. No, what we need is a conference on what it means to be a Christian. Let's start there first. Let's get that in place first, and then let's talk about our marriage. Because if we're not in a right relationship with Christ, we are not going to be in a right relationship with anybody around us, period. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I am so concerned at what's happening today. Because Christ needs that preeminence. He demands that preeminence. And let me ask you a question. Is there anything that we could argue to say that he, isn't, he doesn't deserve that preeminence in our lives? I'm not going to love my wife the way Christ loved the church until I first understand how Christ loved the church and loves me. Selfish, uh, selflessly. Sacrificially. And so forth. I'm not going to be able to parent until I understand how my father parents me. And I respond to that. That's where we're missing it. He is the head of the church. He, ought, he demands that place of preeminence. Number four, he poured out his spirit. In John's gospel, 14 and 16, he promised that once he ascended into the heavens, he would pour out his spirit, which occurred here in the book of Acts, to demonstrate that he is exactly who he said he was. It is the spirit of God that gives us the ability to live out our Christian faith. If we don't understand the spirit's role in the life of the individual, then how can we ever depend on him for our strength and so forth as a believer in Jesus Christ? But because we have the Spirit of God, it confirms to us who Christ is and that He is exalted and sitting at the right hand of God. Number five, He gave gifts to men and to the church. The Holy Spirit actively working through the church through spiritual gifts. We at Calvary Chapel believe the spiritual gifts are still active in God's church today. The same gifts that He outlines for us in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 are at work in the church today. And they are there to edify the saints in the body of Christ. Again, 
though many have experienced the spiritual gifts in a negative fashion, wanting then to write them off altogether rather than seeing them exercised in a healthy fashion. But He has given us the spiritual gifts that we may edify the body of Christ. Number six, He has gone to prepare a place for us. He had told His disciples when they learned that He was about to leave, not to allow your heart to be troubled, but that you are going to be with Me for all eternity in a place that I prepare for you. He is going to place us in a place of security for all eternity before Him. And number seven, His reign from high, He has pledged to return. And as He said in John, He said, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. One of the dynamics of the Christian faith is the understanding of the last days. Today, many feel that the last days are irrelevant. The study of prophecy isn't really a pursuit that should be important or essential to the Christian faith. And yet, all that I see through the New Testament is the constant hope of the Lord's immediate return at any moment. And yet, as believers in Jesus Christ, I should be living in the anticipation of the immediate return of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that He could come at any moment for His church. Just like they did in the New Testament, so shall we today. And I'll tell you, we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Christ than we've ever been before. We have seen seven realities doctrinal realities of Christ exalted at the right hand of God. But what does that mean for you and I today? How should that affect us in a practical, personal way as a follower of Jesus Christ? Now, first and foremost, let me demonstrate for all of you here today very clearly that whoever is in leadership has an effect on the totality of all in whom he or she is leading. So if Christ has been exalted, sitting at the right hand of God, all the, all the individuals that he is leading, there should be a practical ramification of that reality in the life of the believer. If this wasn't true, we would not have had the election of 2016 that we had. If it isn't important about who is leading in a prominent way, we would not have a division in our nation that we have today, would we? But as a believer in Jesus Christ, we need to remember that whoever occupies the Oval Office, Christ is on the throne. And that doesn't change from party to party. That doesn't change from election to election. Christ's position on the throne is permanent. And now we know that there are seven realities, doctrinal realities, of his occupation of that right-hand position next to the throne of God. And therefore... What are the practical implications that will carry me through the difficulties of this world knowing that He is on the right hand of the Father of God? God the Father, I should say, excuse me. Number one, there has to be 
an incentive to holiness. Knowing that Jesus Christ is on the throne, there has to have a conscious awareness awareness that as we look up, we are going to be held accountable by an individual who is currently sitting on the throne, on the right hand of God, been placed there by the Father, and therefore we should have an incentive to walk in holiness. Knowing that though we may do something uh, unbeknownst to anyone around us, all things are open and naked to him and we will be held accountable by him for those things. As one wrote, he says, the upward glance will counteract the downward pull. That's so true. If I know that my Savior is on the throne and what he had to endure to allow him to be on that throne would cause me to rethink the manner in which I live my life to glorify him. Number two, I have then a right concept of the church. As one wrote, the knowledge of the ascension makes for a right conception of the church. Belief in a mere human Christ will cause people to regard the church as merely a human society, useful for philanthropy and moral purposes, but possessing no supernatural power or authority. On the other hand, a knowledge of the ascended Christ will result in the recognition of the church as an organism, a supernatural organism deriving the divine life from its risen head. Meaning we should be a reflection of him. If we think he is dead, what is the church going to be? Dead. If we think he is alive and active, what are we going to be? Alive and active. Number three. We're going to have a right attitude towards the world. If we are conscious of the ascended Christ, we will produce a right attitude towards the world and worldly things. For our conversion, literally our citizenship now is in heaven, from whence we also look for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have moved the moment we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And though I am proud to be, I enjoy being an American and proud of it. First and, foremost, my, first and foremost, my allegiance is to my God in heaven for the salvation in which he has offered unto me. Look at this next one, number four. A deep sense of personal responsibility. Faith in the ascended Christ will inspire a deep sense of personal responsibility. Belief in an ascended Christ carries with it the knowledge that an account will have to be rendered to him someday. The sense of responsibility to a master in heaven acts as a deterrent to sin and an incentive to righteousness. Now, what does that mean? It means that we are going to appear before the bema seat of Christ and our works and our actions will be evaluated at that moment, not for the purpose of entrance into heaven that has been secured in the final work of Jesus Christ. But it will be rendered for our reward. And that reward that we will be given there at the Bema Seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, will be in the form of a wreath that takes us to Revelation 5, 
that we will then throw at the foot of Christ in our last act of adoration and worship for all that he has done in and through us while we were here on this earth. And number five, again, the joyous hope of his return. We see that Christ is now positioned perfectly at the next, at the right hand of God the Father, available to return at the moment God the Father instructs him to do so. He is poised and ready. It is this anticipation that I think we need to rediscover once again as a believer in Jesus Christ. I will tell you often in my life, I have weighed my decision that is before me in the light of the reality that Christ could return at any moment. And it gives a temporal identity to what I am looking at and then engulfs it in the reality of eternity. Let us be aware of that fact that Christ can return at any moment for his church. This morning, I just wanted to stop and just say, Christ is exalted and he is at the right hand of God. And as a result, this is the reality of it. And this is the practicality of it in our personal lives before him. And before we enter into communion this morning, I'd like to read this to you, if I may, in closing. I'd like you to listen to these words. When asked, to sit on my right hand means I'm bringing you to the place of ultimate honor in this kingdom and the place of intimacy, not only of honor, but of love. To sit at the right hand of the king meant not only that you were up there with him, the king, but it also meant that you were in fellowship with the king, that you were in intimacy with the king, that you had the ear of the king. Why is it that when Christ was raised from the dead, he went to the right hand of God? Why is it? You know why, he says. When the father saw the son, his heart burst with love for him. Why? Because look at what the son did. The son emptied himself out of love uh, to go to the earth, emptied himself of all of the glory and lived this perfect life here in this world, a life of love, a life of humility, a life of nobility, a life of courage, a life of wisdom, a life of purity, a life of honesty, a life of truth. He is beautiful beyond bearing and he comes back up And he has made the ultimate sacrifice. Now the father's heart bursts with love for his son and all who are in him. The reality of the risen Christ.